So how many of you, your week went exactly like you planned it? Okay, one, two. Well, you plan on napping all week and it happened, huh? Uh, <clears throat> my week did not go like I planned it this week. Not at all. Um, in fact, this month has not gone at all like I planned this month to go. Um, I'm not sure this year is going at all like I planned it to go, and which might have something to do with the idea that God's plans are different from my plans almost all the time. This morning at 5.30, I woke up, and I said, I'm not happy with my sermon. I don't like it. God taught me something this last week, and it seems like if he put me through that, then maybe he wanted me to share something about that, and that wasn't in the sermon. So I got up, and I reworked my message, and good luck with the PowerPoint. Uh, today, we're going to deal with a stronghold of anger. I got angry this last week. Now, I have a real anger problem. I don't know if you knew that or not. I have an anger problem. My anger problem is I do not express my anger. I stuff it. Okay? That's just as much of an anger problem as the other type where you just blow up. Except for other people are more comfortable around me when I'm angry because I don't express it, but I'm not. Okay? We want to talk about a stronghold of anger. What I want to share with you today may be completely contrary to what other pastors have shared with you in the past. And so you're going to have a challenge. You're going to have a challenge to, to listen to what I say and, and listen to what others say, maybe something you've read, and you're going to have to sort out the contradiction. Okay? I'm just going to share what I think the Lord has shared with me. I want to look today at what the Word of God says about anger, not what secular or even Christian counselors say about anger. I believe that a lot of Christians have bought the lies of Satan instead of believing the truths of God's Word when it comes to this issue of anger. And to begin with, I want to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Verse 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9. Here we read, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. That's the New King James Version. <clears throat> Another translation says, Anger is the friend of fools. Now, I do not want to be a friend with anger because I do not want to be a fool. But to deal with anger, I need to first of all be able to identify it. So today and on the sheet of paper you're going to get at the end of the service, I've listed 24 symptoms of the stronghold of anger. It doesn't help us 
to just know what to do with anger if we can't identify anger. If we can't see it, then we can't deal with it. And a lot of times we have taken symptoms of anger and we have excused them as something else in our life. So I I just want to real quickly go with some of the symptoms that perhaps will give evidence that we are believing lies of Satan when it comes to anger. So, here we go. One, I feel relatively happy, and then I am struck with a sudden mood change. That might be a symptom of anger. I raise my voice loudly to communicate something that I'm emphatic about. I have an expressed impatience with others that oftentimes plays out in exasperation. Like, you know, why can't you get a clue here? I often anticipate another person's predictable behavior and then become angry when I see it being fulfilled. No nudging, okay. (laughs) I become angry when others cannot read my mind. I want others to think just like I think and be able to anticipate what I need. I become angry when I'm not recognized for my contribution. I become angry when I feel I am being disrespected or my words are not taken seriously. I know I am angry because of the language inside of my head. That self-talk, you know. I know I am angry when I do not want to hear what another person has to say. I get angry when others do not make me a priority. I get angry when I do not have what I need or want. I get angry when people do not do what I say. I get angry when I cannot control a given situation. I get angry about suggestions that that I have done something wrong. I get angry when I feel added pressure on my job with finances, with personal responsibilities or expectations. I easily become defensive about myself and about others. I quickly see the faults of others. I look for opportunities to bring up old, hurtful subjects. I find myself speaking negatively or critically of others. The phrase, I don't deserve this, goes through my head frequently. I say I have forgiven, but I continue to reprocess those subjects in my mind. I get frustrated easily about the perceived faults and mistakes of others. I become impatient easily. I feel like my life is harder than others. I've been given a raw deal. Now there's 24 possibilities. Again, they're not endless possibilities. Uh, There's, I'm sure, many more. 
But if you noted several of those, then there might be a stronghold of anger that Satan has built up within you. Now, here's where my sermon changed. My next point was causes of anger. And I had 17 causes of anger. I have reduced them down to two this morning. Okay? And and the reason is that all week long I have been processing something that happened earlier in the week. And what it really came down was two things. And uh, I like to make things simple, okay? Let's not make them really hard. Let's not make them complicated. Let's keep them as simple as possible. Two causes, okay? Number one cause of anger, a sense of entitlement. A sense of entitlement. A sense that for some reason, I am owed something. Let me tell you about my week. I think it was Monday. I've been having a real sore shoulder, so I went to physical therapy and all of that, and they did some tests, and they, they said that I had a frozen shoulder. And I said, great, send me to Hawaii for two weeks. We'll unfreeze that sucker, you know. And he said, no, 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 we'll just shoot this cortisone shot into the shoulder and it'll take care of it. And I said, okay, fine. So I went in and Monday they had this cortisone shot. He says, now, you might experience some discomfort. That is medical language that says you're in big trouble, okay? But... I had back surgery in February, and I still had some of those wonderful pills left over from the back surgery. I thought, no problem. He said, take ibuprofen and maybe, you know. So about 10 o'clock that night, the pain just started to build and build and build. 2.30, I woke up, Karen, and I said, I'm in agonizing pain. I'd taken ibuprofen. I'd taken two of the, the nice pills from the back surgery. Uh, and that was it. So 2.30, we piled into the car, my daughter, my wife, and I headed over to the hospital, arrived at the hospital at 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, there were only four people in the hospital waiting room when we got there. There were just four people. I went in. They checked me in. I went and sat in the waiting room. I sat in the waiting room for four hours. Nobody came out to see how I was doing. Nobody checked on me. About every 90 minutes, they would call somebody, one of the other three, you know, and then two people came in after me, and then they called them in before me, you know. So I'm sitting there in the waiting room from 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. in pain. Nobody seems to care about me. Uh, I felt myself getting angry. Remember, a sense of entitlement. Over the years, I've worked with a lot of missionaries. I've had the privilege of ministering to missionaries, helping them in their spiritual journey around the world and traveling some. And One of the groups of missionaries I work with work out of a little village called Bukavu. It's in Africa, in the Congo. 
And it's just a little village. There's a, a landing strip there for a single-engine Cessna, and that's about all there is. People, in order to get to that little medical compound, have to walk two to three days just to get there. And once they get there, they might have to wait a day or a two to get the medical help that they need. They would love a four-hour wait in an ER room, wouldn't they? That would be great instead of the three to four days that it would take. What makes the difference? Why did I get angry at a four-hour wait when they can endure a four-day wait to get medical treatment? What made the difference was my sense of entitlement. This is America. This is the 21st century. I pay medical insurance. Now, I'm not going to argue the rightness or the wrongness of my entitlement. But what I'm saying is our feelings of entitlement affect our emotions, and particularly our anger. In America today, we have a very strong sense of entitlement. We believe we deserve all the best of everything. If you don't believe that, travel outside the United States sometime. What I want to point out here, again, is not the rightness or wrongness of entitlement, but that my anger came from it. Entitlement could cause anger. That's number one. The second thing that came to me this week as I was kind of exploring this whole situation is anger comes from a sense of selfishness. Anger comes from a sense of selfishness. In my lifetime, I have met my share of narcissistic people. I looked up narcissism in the dictionary this morning just to make sure I got this right. And it says that narcissistic people, basically their relationships are largely superficial. They exist to serve self-esteem, regulation, constrained with little genuine interest in others' experiences and the predominance of need of personal gain. That's narcissism. It's interesting to me I'm going to go off on a limb here. There seems, in my thinking, that the church attracts its fair share of narcissistic individuals, which seems odd to me because Jesus is all about serving. It's all about giving. But yet the... And again, 40 years of pastoring in churches, I have seen way too many of these individuals who are angry because they're selfish. Because it's all about me, it's all about what I want, me, my, mine. The world exists for them. For instance, you're driving down the road, Maybe you're going through Gorse just when the shipyards are letting out and you have the two-car space in front of you. 
okay? You've pulled over to the left, and all of a sudden this car comes up on the right, and he pulls right in there, okay? The selfish person believes the road belongs to them. That's their road. They paid for it. It's their taxes. That was their space. He got in my space. Don't cut them off. The world exists for them. Time belongs to them. <clears throat> Boy, you'd better be there when they want you there. Don't you be a minute late. The world exists for them. People exist for them. They are slaves to do his or her bidding. And by the way, I think, I think there's a gender equality here. I've seen as many women as men with this issue. Selfishness is a focus on self. The more I am focused on my wants, the more angry I will get when I don't get them. That makes sense? Instead of counting to 10 before getting angry, it might be better to ask a couple questions. I don't think the 1 to 10 ever worked, but, you know, people use that. How about this? What sense of entitlement am I feeling right now that has caused me to get angry? Or number two, how am I being selfish? Now, those were just thoughts that came to me this week as I was processing my week and, and what was going on and dealing with, okay, why am I angry uh, and what's going on within me? Now I want to talk about dealing with anger. And here's why I'm going to get crazy, okay? I'm going to go crazy this morning. I'm going to, I'm going to probably not tell you what anybody's ever told you before in dealing with anger. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at 30 and 31. When you get done with this sermon, you're either going to say, wow, that was great, or you're going to be so angry at me. Here we go, Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Uh, I want to, to look at two words here, wrath and anger. They're not synonymous. It's talking about two different things here. The word wrath in the Greek comes from the, the, the word we get thermos from, heat, okay? And, and it means a passion, angry, heat, anger, boiling up. It's, it's losing your temper, okay? That's the first word. So that, that just blow up. The second one, anger, is more of a natural disposition, a temper, a character, have you known somebody that just kind of had an angry attitude all the time? They, just, they would just always seem to carry that anger around. You know, if, 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 if 10 is the boiling over point, they were always at 9. I want you to notice 
both wrath and anger. Both the flare-up and the attitude are sins. Okay? They're sins. They grieve the Holy Spirit. They are to be put away. Now, I know counselors today who have said, anger is not a sin, anger is good. I'm sorry, the Bible says it's sin. I'm going to go with the Bible on this one. Okay? Now, I think it serves a good purpose. It's there for a reason. But let's not ignore the truth that anger and wrath are both sins. And what we have here in this passage is the development of, of, of an attitude being expressed in life. And, and he be, it's kind of a progression. It says, let all bitterness. It begins with bitterness. He, he's, he, he's tracing the development of unresolved bitterness. And he says, bitterness leads to wrath, outbursts of anger, temper. Wrath leads to anger, that angry attitude and rage. Anger leads to clamor, uh, making a public scene. Clamor leads to evil speaking, slander, backbiting. Evil speaking leads to malice, that inner hatred of heart. You see how it's progressing through there? The reason I bring that out is I I believe if we're going to deal with the issue, we've got to go to the root problem. Anger is not a root problem. It is a symptom of another problem. It begins here with bitterness. The danger of harboring an attitude of bitterness is that eventually you will be overcome with anger. If we don't deal with bitterness, then anger will come out some way, somehow. I believe that's why we have to deal with the personal injustices in our life. I told you I have an anger problem. My problem is I don't express my anger. If I do not deal with that, if I do not deal with the issues in my life that have caused that, then it's going to cause all sorts of other problems in my life. That's why we need to learn to forgive. I think we covered that one last week. You see, anger is a red flag. It's waving for you to see that that there's some hurt in your life that you need to address. So in a way, anger is good. It's good the same way as when you hit your finger with a hammer. It tells you something's wrong. Okay? Not pleasant, but something's wrong. There's bitterness that needs to be dealt with. And so here's where I'm going to kind of swing away a little bit from the traditional ways of dealing with anger. I want to go back to the root of anger, bitterness. Go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Let's just take the last part of the verse first and work our way backwards. Two things that bitterness does. 
Number one, it causes trouble. That makes sense, doesn't it? Bitterness causes trouble. It causes anger. Anger can get us into all sorts of trouble. We, we don't think right. We don't act right when anger is controlling us. So bitterness can cause all sorts of, of trouble in our life through anger. The second thing it says it does here is it defiles many. Now, what is it that we love to do when we've been hurt by other people? We love to share it, don't we? We want to share the hurt with other people. You know, the, one of the translations says that um, many are corrupted by its poison. See, when we're angry with somebody, we want other people to be angry with them. So we share. Have, is there anybody who's never done that? I mean, first church I was ever in, graduated from Bible college, 21-year-old, went to work as a youth pastor in a church, had the most horrible experience of my life in a church. For years afterwards, when people would bring up the name of the senior pastor I worked with, I had stories to tell them about what that guy had done to me and how horrible he was and how ungodly he was and... Uh, and I, I just relished just sharing. Oh, what? you think you know that guy? Let me tell you about that guy. And one day I was telling a pastor, and he looked at me and he says, Cal, would you like to get rid of the bitterness? Ooh. Yeah. The bitterness does that. We want to corrupt other people. We want to spread our bitterness to others by telling how much that person has hurt us. And so gossip and backbiting and slander are the results. So bitterness and anger should tell us that we need to deal with the issues of, of personal injustice and we need to forgive. But then somebody always brings up, but what about righteous indignation? Righteous anger. You know, we... We have the right to, to be angry at, at injustice or, or whatever. And my thoughts on that is 99.9% .9 of the time, our anger is, our anger is not righteous. 99.9% okay. uh, .9 of the time, we think it's righteous anger, and it isn't. So I'm not going to let anybody off on that technicality. Let's go back to the verse. First part of the verse, we're told not to miss the grace of God. Don't fall short of the grace of God. Now, what does the grace of God have to do with overcoming anger in our life? What kind of grace are we talking about here? Are we talking about saving grace? Are we talking about dispensation of grace? What, what, what's grace got to do with it? Or love. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's get Paul's concept of the word grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 
beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, grace is not passive. Grace is active. It's an action. It's it's dynamic. It's not static. Paul says grace to you. That's not just fine words on a piece of paper. He's saying, I desire for God's grace to be imparted to you. I want you to abound in this active grace of God in your life. And then we go down to verse 12. 2 Corinthians 1.12. For our boasting is this, <clears throat> the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For Paul, grace was something that controlled his actions. Not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. That was the controlling influence in his life. It was God's grace that caused Paul to conduct himself in a godly manner. Grace is not just some abstraction out there. It's a very real action from God. And Paul says it affected the way he lived and it affected the way he ministered. And so grace gave Paul godly wisdom that actively opposed fleshly wisdom. Skip over to a couple more chapters. 2 Corinthians 4.15. 2 Corinthians 4.15. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Grace is the object that is spread to many people. Okay, We are supposed to be spreaders of grace. That's part of our calling is to spread grace. Now that can be for salvation. We certainly want to spread grace that's going to lead to salvation, aren't we? But it can also be our sanctification. It can be our daily living. But notice there is a result. When grace is received, what happens? Many give thanks to God. The result of receiving God's grace is thanksgiving. Over in Ephesians 4, 6, we're not going to go there, but we read that thanksgiving is the key to overcoming worry and anxiety. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passes all knowledge should put a guard around your heart and your mind. Receiving, a result of receiving God's grace is thanksgiving. Go over to 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, then in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. 
Again, receiving God's grace resulted in some important action. I want you to notice something here. They were in a great trial of affliction. They had their possessions stolen, taken from them. They were beaten. They were cast out. They had a great trial of affliction. Go back and read in the book of Acts what happened there. The churches of Macedonia and Philippi. It says, through the great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of the liberality. You know what he's talking about here? Paul is talking about he took an offering up there in Philippi. Now, let's all go home, have all our possessions taken away from us. We'll get together next week and take an offering. That's in essence what happened. Out of their poverty they gave. And by the way, Paul used them as the example to the Jerusalem church as the people who gave the most. You don't have to have a lot to give a lot. They were beaten by mobs. Their possessions were taken from them. And yet, because of the grace of God, they gave liberally to the Apostle Paul and the saints at Jerusalem. The dynamic, active grace of God produced a specific behavior in them. That's what I want to pound in your head this morning. Okay? If you're about ready to go to sleep, let me give you this and then doze off. All right? Here you go. The dynamic, active grace of God produced a specific behavior within them. That's what grace does. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficient in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Notice all the alls and the alls, always and the, the everythings in there. All grace abounds as up, ends up in us. And we always have all sufficiency in all things. We have everything what we need for life but we also have an abundance of good works. But the condition is, first of all, grace has to be in place. If grace is not in place, nothing else works. Not an abstract grace, but a very real, dynamic gift of God that he calls grace. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 12. This is a great book on grace, folks. 2 Corinthians. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ, for your liberal sharing with them and all men, and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. The saints at Jerusalem were impoverished. The saints in Macedonia took up an offering and, and Paul took it down there to them. And it says the Jerusalem saints envied these saints 
because of the active and exceeding grace of God in them. Didn't envy them because of their money. Didn't envy them because, you know, they had a great situation. Envied the grace of God. They knew it was God's grace active in them that caused them to behave in a certain way. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Here's a verse that if we really believed it, I mean, really believed it and really put it into practice in our life, I think would change us dramatically. Paul had been complaining to God about this thorn in the flesh. I think it was a frozen shoulder he had, you know. He and I were the same spiritual level, you know. Now, we don't know what it was. It was some thorn in the flesh. And Paul's response was, you know, I have an entitlement here. I'm an apostle. I'm out serving the Lord. I'm entitled to be free from pain and suffering. So, Lord, take the pain away. God's answer was this. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. As I was sitting in the ER, waiting my turn, I thought to myself, you know, I think my shoulder's getting better. Well, that, that really doesn't hurt quite as much as I did. Maybe, maybe I'll just go to the desk and we'll just, you know, I'll just go home and, and, you know. My first prayer was for the pain to go away. And then God reminded me, no, it really did hurt. <laughs> Paul, or God said to Paul, I'm going to give you something else. What I'm, instead of taking the pain away, what I am going to give you is I am going to give you a way of thinking and acting that will make all the difference in the world. And so what God gave him was grace. God extended grace to Paul. Now, did it change him? Well, listen to his words. Therefore, I most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Does that sound like he changed the way he was thinking? Sure does to me. From Lord, take it away to I'm going to glory in my infirmities. I'm going to boast. It changed his thinking and it changed his behavior. So instead of begging for healing, he's glorified in his weakness. I believe on the issue of anger. What God wants us to do when we start experiencing that red flag of anger is he wants us to do what he does to us. What does he do to us? He extends grace. When that shipyard worker cuts me off and gores, what does God want me to do? Extend grace. I'm going to get home 
10 seconds later now. Whoopee. Okay? Go back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Hebrews 12, 15. Let's go, let's go back to this concept of bitterness and grace. Again, let me read it for you. Hebrews 12, 15. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Bitterness comes in when we refuse or we resist the grace of God. Now, we can resist it through denying that we're angry, denying we have a problem. That's one way of resisting the grace of God. We can resist it through a failure to confront a problem, or we can resist it through not forgiving. God wants us to do something active, and that activity is to extend grace. But can I do that? Can I do that really? James 4, 6. I'm going to close with this. James 4, 6. I love the first part of this verse. But he gives more grace. What do you do when you run out of grace? I mean, folks, you know some of them people out there. You know how hard it is. You're going to run out of grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This grace that changes the way we think, uh, the way we act in any given situation, God says, I will give you an overabundance of this grace. But there's a condition. The condition is, I will give it to the humble only. I will not give it to the proud. Who are the humble? Well, as far as our topic this morning, the humble are those who look at anger as a red flag pointing to hurts in their lives that they maybe have not dealt with fully. And the humble are those who refuse to believe the lies of Satan, lies like they don't need to forgive. The humble are those who yield to the Holy Spirit's leading and free individuals from a debt they cannot pay, just as God has already done for us. The humble bless those who hurt them, and to spitefully use them because grace is at place in their heart. 